This is, yep, now we're starting. Okay. We're recording. All right. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Yesterday's History. I'm your host, Connor, and I'm joined today by none other than Nick Jensen. Wow, quite quite the intro. I don't know if I deserved all that, but <laughs> and all that we, hype. We also have somebody else back that I would love to reintroduce to the podcast. Jackson Langland. It is quite good to be back now that we've figured out how to do this like remote recording. This is fun. Yeah, this is this is going to be interesting. This is also going to be a learning curve for all of us. So please just uh, bear with us on this one. But uh, today we have a quite riveting topic that is also very current to our world political geopolitical situation. So today. We are talking about the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, otherwise known as NATO. Jackson, I'll let you bring us in on this one, since Jackson, you did about 99% of the research on this. So, I will now sit back and let Jackson take us for, uh, take us for a ride. No, you give me too much credit. Well, the reason this is uh, much more relevant right now is because not only is NATO pretty important in eastern europe right now um it also was formed this month so let's talk about the world's largest peacetime military alliance the north atlantic treaty organization uh this alliance of nations was signed by its participants on the 4th of april 1949 after months of deliberation its original members were the united states canada belgium denmark france iceland italy luxembourg the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, and the United Kingdom. It was essentially a mutual defense alliance aimed at protecting post-war Europe, which had been absolutely devastated. Uh, Article 5 fam- famously states that an act of armed attack against one member would be treated as an attack against every member. Other articles allow allowed for cooperation in military assistance, the Article 3, and methods to engage in non-military cooperation, Article 2. But let's back up a bit and discuss in more detail where this alliance came from. We're going to talk about it, but so all those countries that Jackson just listed, those didn't all originally start in uh, NATO. There there, uh, was an original couple of nations that started in the Benelux Treaty, but we're, we're going to get all to that. And NATO eventually, they just, all these countries kind of build off of each other. And as we kind of go through it, you're, you'll see NATO kind of start out as a European alliance and then slowly begin to involve Scandinavian countries. And then after that, it'll begin to involve the United States, which builds this, this North Atlantic uh, supply line almost uh, all the way from America to Europe, which would be like the bulwark against uh, Bolshevism or communism famously. I love this era of history because like I've consumed a lot of media on it, but like only through the lens of extreme conspiracy. And <laughs> there's some fun stuff out there. Like, do you guys want know what like the number one conspiracy is around this? En- enlighten us. It's aliens. Yeah, I do not. I do not know this. It's always aliens. We, you know, we had to secretly form military <laughs> strength to stand up to the aliens that the Germans may or may not have been in contact with during World War II. Operation Dumbbell or whatever it is. I can't recall, but yeah, they were 
took control of whatever uh, society that was to channel the reptilians and give them all the secrets. I really like how we've already gone from like the first paragraph of our outline to fringe conspiracy, and it only took us about ten sentences. Uh, is what I'm here for. <laughs> that's fun. I had actually not heard of that before. So that's an interesting. Well, that'll do some, some good late night reading. I'll give you all the details later. So, uh, moving on. Uh, after World War II, Europe was a mess. Totally understandable after have, just being uh, the battleground for the largest war in human history. Um, according to NATO's own website, some 36 million Europeans had died, and of those, 19 million were civilians. Not great numbers. Now, it's hard to tell if these numbers include uh, Soviet deaths, as the, that number, the number of Soviet deaths fluctuates from 20 to 25 million, depending on who you ask and who is counted. I think, I, my personal opinion, I think it does include Russians, as although its borders extend to the Pacific, the vast majority of its people live west of the Urals, which I think is like the traditional eastern edge of Europe. Anyway, a lot of people were dead, and almost everyone's economy was in shambles. In these days, there was a fear of European remilitarization. Germany had done that a couple of times. But let's be honest, the real fear was the absolutely massive Red Army occupying all of Eastern Europe, except the Balkans, Austria, and Switzerland. Yeah, and saying the Red Army is massive at this point is a complete understatement. So the Red Army, just in Eastern Europe, because that's where they were focused, they had a token force in, uh, in Eastern Russia to fight the Japanese, but that was nothing compared to the 11.3 million soldiers Russia had what? just in Europe at war's end. How... Why? Why do they have so many people? Well, I mean, th- that's that's just how Russia solves problems. Their their typical uh, solution to solving a problem is throw more peasants at it. Ah, uh, yes. The classic move. So the, the actual statistic is that, or estimates range, but the Soviets outnumbered Allied forces either 8 to 1 or 10 to 1, depending on who you asked. And this is also, like... The Soviet army was mainly men and machines, so men and tanks. They had more tanks, more people, more guns, but where the Allies did have their advantage was in their air force. Because you had the uh, Strategic Air Command, which was a beginning branch of the U.S. military that would become the Air Force, and we that's how we were able to just bomb Germany into submission, bomb Vichy France, bomb Italy. We were able to bomb all these guys into submission. We didn't have the manpower that Russia had at this point in time. And that's why it was so scary because you have people like George S. Patton sitting there staring down 11.3 million Russians and they don't know what to do about this because now they see a new enemy. I mean, your enemy is the... Well, they're noticing that Russians aren't just going home either. Yeah, and your your enemy is always going to be the person with the bigger stick. Now that Germany and Italy, or the Axis powers, don't have that big-ass stick, the Russians have it. So that automatically, or naturally, would make them our next rival. It's going to make them our next big enemy for the, well, next, whatever, 70, 80 years now. I mean, even... even today? Yeah. Till, till, yeah. Till like 91. 
it is true that bombing the shit out of people is a time-honored American tradition. It's nice to uh, see that we haven't changed our ways. Well, this is when it started. Or when it kind of, like, got, yeah, kicked off. America's pastime. When the war ended, the former Axis were forcibly disarmed, so that takes a huge chunk of people out of the equation. And the Allies began demobilizing, as wartime armies are prohibitively expensive, with the notable exception of the Soviet Union, whose command economy allowed it to remain at wartime levels. Uh, Western European nations had no illusions that if Stalin so chose, he could have his army march all the way to the Atlantic and face almost no real resistance on the ground. The Western powers may have had the huge air forces, but they would probably end up killing as many civilians as Red Army troops. So after ending the second, the second of the largest wars ever in less than 40 years, it was deemed Europe again needed to be ready for all-out war, and that required a ton of money the continent did not have, but the United States did. So yeah, the United States had the big money basket. Well, I mean, the United States have been pulling in money since, I mean, it, this goes back to First World War economics. The U.S. came out completely unscathed in that war. They bankrolled every nation, pretty much. I mean, and, and even at the beginning of the Second World War, you had congressmen, U.S. congressmen saying that we should fund the Russians... Until the Russians began to win. And when the Russians would win, then you start funding the Germans. And then you let them kill each other off. I mean, those are U.S. congressmen having that debate. And that that's just so that in that situation, the U.S. would come out on top. No and we should have done it. <laughs> See, that's a hot take. Well, that's like basic, um, that's basic politics going back to ancient times. I mean, the Persians were famous for doing that. And in Greece, they would just fund one Greek-like city-state until they started to win, then they'd fund their enemies until they started to win. They did this over and over again. It's like they're fighting each other. That's the whole basis of the Peloponnesian War. I mean, you have Athens and Sparta. Yeah. Like, it's exactly, exactly, yeah, exact same situation. Just, you know, fast forward uh, 2,000 years, 3,000 years. Yeah, a few thousand years. I mean, that's just basic, like, Dip diplomacy. It's like, well, if they're fighting each other, they're not going to be fighting me. So, I love the American attitude and just like poking our head over, like, well, hey there, we uh, so you got a massive project that needs some funding that'll put you in our pocket forever. Uh, we have a thriving middle class. We'd love to tax to fund it. Well, you just you just wait till we get to those parts. It gets pretty, it gets pretty dark, and it's let's just say that NATO was not funded for altruistic reasons. Of course not. <laughs> oh, no. But it was actually kind of done at the request of European nations who were terrified. <laughs> anyway, the signatories uh, were made even more nervous of Stalin's expansionist leanings when several nations under Soviet occupation underwent less than democratic changes in government. Uh, I'm most familiar with the Czech situation, where post-war economic turmoil created an environment that favored leftist rhetoric. Elections in 1946 brought in more communists and leftists. They opposed a rearmed Germany, which the U.S. was beginning to see as a way to oppose the um, Soviets. Uh, so the U U.S. canceled a large loan to uh, Czechoslovakia, further worsening their economic situation. Yeah, okay, so in this situation, though, with Czechoslovakia, the U.S. really shot themselves in the foot. Because the U.S. did not... 
we expected that if we canceled these loans, it would help force the checks to actually come to the realization that democracy and maybe if we put a stranglehold on the Czech government and the Czech, the country of Czechoslovakia, if we put that stranglehold on, it might force them to come over to our side. But then what happened is the complete and total opposite is after we cut off this funding, the Czechoslovakian people decided to switch over to a communist regime. And then the Western powers had a complete fucking meltdown because now there is a communist country in Germany's backyard who Germany is also now we're starting to look at as Germany as, you know, it's 1947, 48. And we're looking at Germany, uh, ironically, as the bulwark against Bolshevism. And, and now Germany's backyard has fallen to communism, which is, I don't know. I, I just feel like the U.S. really shot themselves in the foot on this one. Well, it's kind of funny because all they did by canceling that loan, all that did was um, create like worsen the economic situation, which the Czech citizens immediately blamed on the government because why wouldn't they? And that that makes sense. That I mean, the economy sucks. The, the government doesn't seem to be doing anything because they're broke. So they're like, "What economy can get us out of this?" And the Russians are right there to go. Well, hey, we'd love to help. And and it's. I don't know. It's just so crazy to me that even just a couple of years after the war, it's not even a couple of years after the war, but it's like two during the war, the U S was already trying to stem the tide of communism by supporting different groups or withdrawing support for certain groups. I mean, hell during, I think in 1944, you have Alan Dulles in Greece, in Yugoslavia, in Italy, and he's talking with fascist fighting brigades on how they can stop and slow down the Soviets so that way it would give democratic governments more time to organize in these countries. I mean, you have U.S. intelligence officers helping fascist brigades in fascist countries fight the Soviets during the Second World War. It's just... You already realize before the war's over, the U.S. is already looking to the future and looking to the enemy that's already standing there in front of them. I mean, it's it's just crazy. <laughs> Such a crazy concept. Well, the Allies as a whole were not... I mean, the Allies as a whole viewed the Russians as like a ally of convenience, not one they actually agreed with. <laughs> I think we hated them more than the Nazis the whole time. We just nope. had to had to deal with the situation as it was i you're completely right there though because i mean even churchill said if hitler invaded hell he would befriend the devil just just so that way like i like his attitude you just you just befriend anybody so you were right jackson like well he was also saying that he was also saying that, like the height of like uh, the Battle of Britain, where the it was a very real option. The Russian, the Germans would be landing on the British coast. Yeah, I think he was. I'd, I'd agree with him too. I would have befriended the devil if the Germans decide to attack. He, it them. was just. It was like what you said, though. It's. It was all just an alliance of convenience. Continuing on from that, moderates in Czechoslovakia, after um, the loan was canceled by the U.S., they fielded uh, the option of participating in the soon-to-begin Marshall Plan in early 1948. Uh, 
But the communists responded with strikes and protests. All the leftists there who were still upset with the government didn't want to deal with the West because they thought, felt they'd been abandoned. By February, they had forced other parties from government. And on the 25th of February, President Benes, or Benes handed over the cabinet. Uh, rigged elections in May, validated the communist victory, and Benes resigned and fled while in March, his former foreign minister was found three floors below his office in the foreign ministry due to a uh, suicide attempt. Quote, unquote, suicide. Yeah. He had supported accepting the Marshall Plan and was one of the few non-communists to remain in government after Benes resigned. Um, it was definitely not a suicide. It's pretty much agreed now that he was tossed out his window by some either actual Russians or just um, communist sympathizers in Czech, in Czech, Czechoslovakia. The events in Czechoslovakia were not uncommon in the nations of Eastern Europe. As the Soviets slowly withdrew their army, they left behind many communist influencers and political parties, which had the direct support of Moscow. Um, it isn't hard to see who the signatories of NATO thought an attack would come from. The blockade of West Berlin was another incident which further cemented Western Europe's belief in eventual Soviet aggression. The United States also worried that given the horrible situation left over by the war, it would be tempting for many European nations to negotiate with Russia for aid and security. Which, I mean, some of them did and some of them didn't do. A lot of them did it very reluctantly because they knew asking for Soviet support, that came with a huge price tag in and of itself. I mean, and then even just backing up another second, just like, is we're just going to breeze over it because we just don't have time. We don't have Dan Carlin time here to record. But, like, the, the Soviet blockade of eastern Berlin is is just one of those tension points in world history where you see almost nuclear war breaking out. Or before the Soviets even had the nuclear weapon, this is when the Soviets stopped, drew a line in the sand, and they said... You can have West Berlin, but you're gonna or East Berlin, but you're gonna have to nuke us for it. And somehow Truman was able to walk his way back from this, and they found their way out of that just through the Berlin airlift. Yeah, they were just asking like the Russians were like, okay, we can't invade anything, but you're gonna start a war over West Berlin, half of a city. So like as as we can tell, like it's 1947, 1946, 47, 48. Tensions have already ramped up to uh, un untenable levels, and and now you have these two superpowers just sharing a border, or quote unquote sharing a border through proxy states like East and West Germany. It's it's obviously going to precipitate yeah. in something bigger. Well, they're also noticing since like the bad economic situations are a huge part of what started the Second World War. That's where all these really extremist governments came from. The economy sucked. People were pissed. And so they were willing to turn to, you know, far right wing nut jobs to, to, to save them. And they're seeing the same situation now after the war, the economy still sucks in these countries. And they're like, well, they might turn to, I don't know, some extreme left wing company or like governments to save them. Don't you just love a far right wing nut job? Yeah. A good, uh, just a good, good psycho. It does have a certain ring to it. Hey, I mean, the Cubans went for it and held on to it for a while. Anyway, um, so the United States and the soon-to-be signers of the treaty understood that for a non-communist Europe to survive, two things had to happen. 
first, these war-turned countries desperately needed money to rebuild their critical infrastructure and housing, plus food to keep their citizens from starving. Nobody had any money. They had just spent all, it all on the, uh, on the war, so the U.S. would have to foot the bill. This was done largely through the Marshall Plan, which provided billions for rebuilding to any nation who asked for it. Stalin refused on part of the Soviets and prevented any of its satellite states from participating in the Marshall Plan as well. This money would help stabilize the nations and weaken the idea of Russia as their only savior. Secondly, the militaries of Europe would need to be revitalized. Again, this required money from the United States. Even with USAID, it was understood that none of them stood a chance alone, and a transatlantic agreement was needed to truly guarantee their safety. This was the beginning of NATO. Given this understanding, in March of 1948, Great Britain, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg signed the Brussels Treaty, which was essentially a a mutual defense pact. In May of that year, Senator Vandenberg advised the president to set up a security treaty with Western European powers that would adhere to the UN Charter, but exist outside of the Security Council to avoid the inevitable veto from the USSR. Yeah, this was also because we we also still had the the UN was a thing at this point, and if NATO had formed within the confines of the UN or within the arms of the UN, Russia would have a veto power over certain certain aspects of what could and couldn't be passed because you have what China, the USSR, the United States, Britain and France. They what there wasn't China at this point, not in the Security Council. China wasn't really a thing yet. They were still fighting their own civil war. So that's that's also why the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was formed outside of the confines of the UN because we just didn't want Russia having a say in anything that involved these these countries yeah because the russians had a permanent place on the security council so they could veto anything and i think um the security council needs it's like i think it's unanimous or near unanimous decision making to do anything it has to be unanimous okay yeah the later known vandenberg resolution passed in congress and negotiations began with europe there was a bit of a hang-up in the writing or in the wording since western europe wanted assurances that the u.s would act immediately if the treaty was violated but under the US, the U.S. Constitution, Congress had to declare war before the military could move. I have no idea how they wrote their way around uh, that, but in any case, it satisfied the Europeans, and it did not violate the Constitution. Uh, there was some nitpicking about how aid would be distributed. Western European nations wanted individual grants, but the U.S. preferred to make it conditional on regional cooperation. This part is kind of fucky. So they wanted each, like what Jackson just said, each European nation wanted to get like an individual stipend almost, or like get a grant. But we were able to negotiate. So in NATO now, even to this day, it stands where each country has to contribute 2% to NATO. Now, where does that 2% come from? That's 2% of a country's GDP. So that has nothing to do with... uh, the size of their military, how much... And this is the part that pisses me off. Everybody freaks out because the U.S. contributes more and blah, 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 blah. The U.S. contributes more because we have a larger GDP than, per se, Belgium. So we're able to contribute more. As long as Belgium contributes minimum 
2% of their GDP, they are totally fine. They are within their rights. So then you have, like, fast forward to... I don't think... I think in recent decades that the concern is more... My understanding, I could be totally wrong, but I think people just straight up aren't even paying the 2% of their GDP, I think, is where the concern has come from in recent times. But, but, it, but a lot of these countries... are paying nothing. No, but they, they still are. Like, you have Germany... Germany, the U.S., and England for the past 30 years have obviously paid over their percentage. Like, the U.S. has paid the most percentage of their GDP to NATO, which, totally, not not fair. Like, we shouldn't have to do that. Like, we can totally backtrack that down from, like, the 5, 4, 4%. Where it's, it's not even that much more. We can totally back that down to get to that 2%. And nobody else has to pay more, but just to be a part of NATO, all you have to do is contribute 2% of your GDP. And, and people freak out about that as if the U.S. is paying more, but we're paying more because we have chosen we're to better. pay more. We're better. I think they should take all that money and put it into NFTs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do NFTs for NATO. NFTs for NATO, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Oh, this has got a nice, like... um slogan to it yeah. <laughs> nfts for murder yeah we'll do we'll we'll, we'll sell nfts for like the okay yeah uh, nfts for like the rwandan genocide oh nfts for uh kosovo <laughs> nfts for you know the genocide that went on in yugoslavia every tragedy gets an nft every every tragedy and every genocide nato is a part of we get an nft for are you coming up just a really twisted way to sell war bonds yes hey hey now you got to make money somehow i thought that's what two percent was well i would love to actually see how they actually worded the um way so that the u.s could act immediately but didn't violate the constitution so like i i would love to see how they actually did some like legalese gymnastics around not be having to declare war immediately but being able to send military aid immediately because <laughs> so i figured that out somehow not that it's become an issue recently because there hasn't been a, we haven't declared war in 70, 80 years. But still, like back in the 40s, they took that seriously. So in 49, they would have been like, oh, yeah, no, we have to declare war before we do anything. But whatever they did, it worked. <laughs> they figured it out. Um, so moving on, the scope of the treaty was also an issue as the Brussels signatories wanted to keep it just to the treaty members plus the U.S. So they want to keep it with just the original Brussels treaty members and add the U.S. to it. Which the original Brussels Treaty members were the Luxembourg, Netherlands, Belgium, Britain, France, plus the U.S. Yeah, they want to keep it to those five and tag on the U.S. Uh, while the United States felt there was a benefit to enlarging the treaty to other nations, specifically Canada, Ireland, Denmark, Norway, Iceland, and Portugal. We'll get to Portugal real quick, but basically these nations, they want to, they want to supply bridge from North America to Europe should the worst happen. Yeah, so that's the supply bridge I was talking about earlier in the podcast where you have Canada, Denmark. It just pretty much a bridge all the way from North America, the steel belt of North America, all the way to central Germany. And that's that's, yeah. that's the supply belt we were talking about. They basically wanted from the Fulda Gap to uh, Detroit to all be friendly territory. <laughs> Portugal's a great inclusion to this. It's just goofy that they brought in it all because I don't think it really helps too much with the whole gap or the whole supply chain. 
We'll get to Portugal in a minute, though. We'll get to Portugal. Anyway, so at the beginning of April 1949, the North Atlantic Treaty was signed by the United States, Canada, Belgium, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, and the United Kingdom. There, yeah, there is one thing that really jumps off the page here if you're looking for it, and that's Portugal, which was fascist. It's not even just Portugal. If you just go back through that list Jackson just talked about, there's also another country on that list that we are also taught, like, it's just mind-boggling. Italy might not have been fascist, but now Italy is part of the original, what, 12, 13 countries that joined NATO. I mean, it's Italy. I mean, we were there helping fascists. It, uh, it's just so crazy. And then we actually have a fascist country, the Estad Nuevo, whatever. I forget the name of the government. I think it's Estad Nuevo. It's, that's the fascist government of Portugal who helped the Spanish fascists who are all in line with the goddamn Nazis and now we're just letting them in the NATO? Well, they kind of were. They didn't really help supply. They basically tried, they tried, they stayed out of the whole thing and just said they occasionally passed like information to the Nazis from time to time. They didn't send troops or anything. They had no like, they might have like done some like favorable loans. Just killed a couple of Jews. Only a few, just killed a few Jews. Not, not. Too oh many. yeah, no, they, they all, they all got on, they all jumped on that bandwagon. They all jumped on, I, but it also just goes to prove that NATO was, as long as you weren't too hardcore, you could have joined NATO. As long as you, like, you could be fascist as long as you weren't actively invading other nations. Italy, they had, apparently they decided they had taught Italy its lesson, so. Yeah, they, they learned their lesson. What I think is funny about Portugal, though, is they stayed fascist until, like, 68 or 74, depending on how you want to date it, so, like... <laughs> They were allowed so to. So did just... Spain, though. No, no, Spain wasn't allowed to. Uh, Spain didn't join until after it became democratic. Wait, really? Oh, mm-hmm. okay. I think I, I have ta- that I think mixed I... up then. I think I talk about that later, or well, that's in this later on. So, about, yeah, I do remember specifically reading that that Spain didn't join until it was um, democratic again. Although, speaking of like aggression for the Portuguese, I did f- come across something about a Portuguese colonial war in the early seventies, but it must not have mattered too much to NATO or the UN because on on NATO's own website they have like a single like line about it and that's it so they must not care too much about it um anyway that rounds out the first string team for uh, nato over the years more nations will join but these are the originals there were some teething problems with the treaty that became apparent almost instantly first the soviets detonate their first uh, atom bomb in august of 1949 which kind of uh, threw everyone for a loop barely four months after the treaty was signed. Then in June of the next year, 1950, the Korean War kicks off. And suddenly NATO realizes it has no command structure in place for its military alliance. Kind of a major oversight when you think about it. Um, So very quickly, they set up a central command in a French town of Roquidencourt. I can't, I butchered that, but it's near Versailles. Kind of poetic, I think. Why does everything in France happen near Versailles? Or like they set up all these... Anyway. This is called Supreme Headquarters Allied Command Europe, or SHAPE. And who to take the top job? None other than Ike himself, who had been Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. That's um, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Not, not president yet. Not President Eisenhower. Nope. He's just in charge of, you know, all of Europe instead. 
I would prefer to be that. So would he, that some say. Anyway, uh, they also set up a civil secretariat in Paris with a secretary general, uh, Lord Ismay, from the UK for some reason. Lord Ismay is a character in and of himself. He was forced into becoming the first general secretary general of NATO, and he wanted nothing to do with NATO. He was so against being a part of the coalition that he ha- he voiced his concerns to every member of uh, the British Parliament, but he was still forced, or I guess coerced, into becoming the first Secretary General. And even, like, after he became the Secretary General, he stated NATO's mission as being to keep the United States in, to keep Germany under, and to keep the USSR out. Which, I mean, you can also just change all of those up and that still applies today. Just Is that such a bad thing, though? I mean, <laughs> it depends on the order. Well, the German part's kind of fallen off now because Germany's, like, super necessary to NATO. It's, like, yeah. one of the top three people in it. There are three nations. Well, it's one of the top... I mean, it has one of the highest GDPs in Europe because France has been on a perpetual decline since the Franco-Prussian War. England has just lost its star. And... The, the United States is still holding its holding its position pretty clearly. Germany Germany is just the powerhouse of Europe though at this point. Like that that's why like even part of part of NATO's other mission is you can't let the USSR or currently modern day Russia you can't let them have an economic pact because you can't have the raw industrial power of Germany combined with all the natural resources of Russia because that would put the U.S. on the back burner and the U.S. can't have that. And and that's why you have to keep, even just today, back then, today, you have to keep Russia out of this this power loop. And that's why like NATO was so important and NATO is still important today because that's where it keeps Russia. It keeps Russia on the back burner. Well, it's, it kind of is. It's, it's more, it was a general, it was a, like a mutual defense thing against Russians who looked very scary at the time. And that's why I think there's been some issues, like you were saying about like who's contributing what to NATO, because people are starting to question the importance of it. Cause Russia is not nearly as scary as it used to be. And I mean, there's all, like, all those other countries in Eastern Europe who are, who used to be uh, part of like the giant USSR that aren't, that aren't, that are on the, going their own way now. So like, that's been a question of like what NATO is, what the purpose of it is anymore. It also occurred to me while writing this, that, uh, NATO, uh, the United Nations, and the USSR all are headed by secretary generals or general secretaries for some reason. I have That's probably just a coincidence, but I feel like NATO would probably... I don't know why they decided to go with the general secretary. Anyway, it's not neither here nor there. I thought that was an interesting little point. During this time, the prevailing Allied defense plan was massive retaliation. So any act of aggression by Moscow, no matter how small would be met with all-out atomic war. This was because none of the Western European NATO nations had the money to both rebuild and maintain large conventional militaries at the time. During Korea, the U.S. bolstered its troop commitment to Europe as well as fighting in Asia in order to deter a possible Soviet attack because everyone thought the Korean attack could easily be a diversionary for a European invasion. Additionally, in 1952, Greece and Turkey were let into NATO, which freaked out Russia since Turkey shares a border with them. For Khrushchev, 
The final straw was in 1955 when West Germany was admitted. In response, the Russians created the Warsaw Pact that same year with the Soviet Union, Albania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania, and East Germany as its members. Best to think of it as a straight-up foil or like opposite of NATO. Dude, they were so peanut butter and jealous. Oh, yeah. They just wanted to be cool like us, so they had to go make their own club. Yeah. And Plus, they did not did not mean to steal that from any specific movie or anything. We are not going to get copyrighted for that. <laughs> yeah. Plus, also, I just found out that in 1955, or no, in 1956, the year after West Germany was admitted, they were allowed to rearm. Which <laughs> so West Germany immediately popped up a few hundred thousand man army out of basically nowhere. Which is kind of, which makes sense because they just re-recruited, like they set up the uh, drafts again. They just redrafted most of the people who fought in the Second World War. Well, I mean, Germany was still going through denazification at this point, and I mean, there is still the Allied occupation of Western Germany and Western Berlin, and we're still going through the process at this point of denazification. So obviously, there's still going to be some loyalists. There's still going to be some stragglers in there at this point. Seemed like there would be a lot at this point. <laughs> there, there were well, there a were, lot. There were tons you're, of them. You're going to find out very shortly here about you know the the new German army. The what do we call it? The Bundes, Bundes, uh, Bund, Bundeswehr, 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 which was the German the the new Wehrmacht. I mean, it was entirely made up of of old Nazis. I mean, hell, the the old spy apparatus of the Nazi regime, the Gestapo, a lot of them and a lot of those murderers were employed to help keep order within these within these fallen Nazi states and within these fallen fascist states. So there's there are Nazis within NATO at this point. We are in nineteen fifty five. There are Nazis now, dedicated Nazis, who were, I guess were, reformed maybe if you want to call them Nazis who are now in NATO. NATO NATO and the UN were pretty um in the in the you know allied occupation was pretty uh intense about not letting real like real like died in the wool Nazis into the new Bundeswehr. That's why it only numbered a few hundred thousand instead of a few million like the original like the German army that was recently demobilized. Yeah, but there was also a, a stipulation for West Germany joining NATO where they were no longer allowed to criticize the old Wehrmacht because they they believe that if you criticize the old Wehrmacht, that it would demoralize and help decrease recruitments across the country. So that's why they renamed it the Bundeswehr, and you didn't hear any criticism about people who joined, or there were no questions asked at some recruiting stations. And that's how you get these ex-Nazis and these ex-SS men joining the brand new German Bundeswehr. Well, yeah, there was some definite willful, like, ignorance. Like, yeah, if you don't say, we're not going to ask kind of thing. But they also, I mean, they needed the people. And so, I mean, I guess they they, should, they probably could have been a bit more um, stringent in their selection processes. But they were, whatever they did worked well enough that there wasn't any, there weren't any Nazi uprisings. Like, the, like the, the Wehrmacht was supposed, had standing orders, after, like, when the war ended, to flee into the mountains and fight as guerrillas. And America, like Allied occupation at that point, their job was fight was doing um, counterinsurgency. And they said the the big the, most of the reason why it worked was because all the people who fled to the mountains got hungry and came back out to get jobs and work because their the, the the Marshall Plan was working and the economy was actually coming back. 
So they weren't just out there with no food or nothing. Their families were like, no, we got food. Like, the economy's not so bad. Just come back. They're not going to imprison you. And they came back, and they're like, oh, we don't have to fight an insurrection. Anywho, as the military questions were being answered, the political cooperation was neglected until the Suez Crisis in 56, which demonstrated the lack of political coordination between the sig signatories. Uh, the short version is the Egyptians nationalized the canal, as it is in Egypt, and this freaked out the French and British who relied on it to manage their colonial holdings. In response, the Israelis, British, and French occupied the canal without asking either the UN or NATO. This managed to anger both the US and USSR. The US was upset they weren't informed of their allies' intentions, and Soviets used this as an opportunity to rail against Western imperialism, which was sort of fair. This and the Sputnik launch in the same year encouraged the members of NATO towards closer scientific and political cooperation, as stated in the report given to NATO by Canada, Italy, and Norway. Um, oddly enough, that was called the Report of the Three Wise Men, which I found interesting. Yeah, this whole, this, this also is like the, this is the first Suez crisis, right? So when, after Nasser, the U.S. also had nothing to do with Britain, France, and Israel invading Egypt, because the U.S. would have liked the NATO countries to have stayed out. It would have given U.S. interests a better fighting chance to get in, rather than having Britain, France, and Israel take over. The U.S. was all for Nasser nationalizing the Suez Canal at this point, which kind of put parts of NATO high command at heads. And that's why you don't really see too many or too much U.S. aid going to Israel at this point in time or to the U.K. or France. This is a completely French and yeah. British operation that the U.S. had no idea was going to happen. Yeah, I think that's what annoyed the United States the most was the fact that they just did this and they almost started a war. And the U.S. would have had to, because of the, the North Atlantic Treaty, would have had to defend um you know, Britain and France, and Britain and France, if the Russians decided to do something, and that would have that it also it also pissed off because Egypt and Nasser were considered quote unquote neutral, kind of like Turkey at this point in time. <laughs> Turkey is a NATO member at this point. Yeah, so Turkey is a NATO member at this point, but by this point, Turkey had already fought one NATO member and invoked Article Five the most, and has also been the NATO country to have the most coups <laughs> ever. The U.S. was mad because they thought that this would, this event, the Suez Crisis, would push Nasser to t have closer ties to Russia, which it actually did. And so there was a lot of uh, Russian anti-air missiles and anti-air weapons and anti-tank weapons from Russia, Czechoslovakia, that was being funneled to Nasser at this point, and which really pissed off the U.S. because, like we said, the U.S. had no idea this was all going to happen from Britain and France. Well, I think, the, I think the Russians, like, or Khrushchev was threatening also, like, actual Soviet on-the-ground support at the canal, which would have been bad. Uh, I mean, that would have threatened uh, a lot. Of, that would have caused an international crisis. Oh, for sure. Um, yeah, well, anyway, they managed to sort this out diplomatically with the, the British, French, and Israelis withdrawing. In the 60s, following the Cuban Missile Crisis, NATO moved from a purely defensive body to one of relaxing tensions between East and West. Uh, for some reason, France requested to withdraw from the unified command structure and have the NATO headquarters removed from French soil, but they remained part of the mutual defense, but just didn't want to be part of it, the coordination 
I don't know why they felt this was a good idea or necessary, but they just wanted to, they want to be part of the defense treaty, but not part of how they coordinated the militaries. Anyway, um, Brussels became the new headquarters with Supreme Headquarters in Castel, Casto, Belgium. This is strange because France continued to make valuable contributions in later NATO operations. It did show that NATO could work with members with differing viewpoints, something the Warsaw Pact simply couldn't do. As NATO continued working to relax tensions between themselves and members of the Warsaw Pact, the Soviets ratcheted them right back up by invading Afghanistan in 1979. They also deployed the SS-20 ballistic missile to Eastern Europe, which didn't help. That's a basically an intermediate-range nuke, for lack of a better term. That could be driven around on a truck. The SS-20 is that iconic truck-rounded nuke. It looks sort of like a scud, but with longer range. NATO and the UN attempted to negotiate with Moscow, but got nowhere until Mikhail Gorbachev becomes the new Supreme or Soviet premier in 1985 and signed the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty with the U.S. in 1987. This treaty eliminated all nuclear and ground-launched ballistic and cruise missiles. Also, the 80s saw the first new member added to the alliance since 1955, with a newly democratic Spain joining. Way to go, Spain. And finally, it only took them until, uh, 19... What? What'd you say? Uh, it was in the 80s. It was, I'm pretty sure it was the early 80s. Um, they had some... So, Frank, this is right after when Franco finally died. Yeah, essentially. Once Franco after, died. After Franco died, Spain Spain finally allowed to have, or was allowed to have democratic elections. Yeah, there was like five minutes where the military, like some generals or whatever, tried to take control, and then they got overthrown in a coup, I think. I think it was pretty bloodless, if I remember correctly. No, it was, it was a pretty easy coup, because Spain transferred over to a democratic country pretty easily. Yeah, they, they, they were actually, there wasn't a whole lot of problem with it. The 1980s was when the world saw communism begin to fall apart. Uh, dissidents were finally having successes in speaking out against the ideology of communist regimes and were not being immediately silenced. Ironically, the Soviets kind of aided to this by adhering to the human rights principles of the Helsinki Act they had signed in 1975, basically to stop randomly imprisoning people who said anything bad about the government. To add to the ideological, ideological struggle, the command economies of the Eastern Bloc were finally falling apart, mostly because of bad decisions made decades ago finally coming home to roost. The USSR alone was spending three times as much money on defense as the U.S. was. This was under Reagan, by the way, with an economy only one-third the size. Uh, that was clearly unsustainable, and the crumbling of the Soviet economies proved it. It's almost like socialist slash communistic tendencies aren't good for your economy. Very interesting. It, it kind of yeah, right. just doesn't seem to work, ever. No, yeah, they're not um, the most responsive to problems, especially when they do something foolish. Now, after the Berlin Wall came down in 89, the dissolution of the Warsaw Pact in the following years, the question arose whether NATO was still needed. There was no longer a them to defend against, was the alliance still relevant? The organization remained due to its other mandates, deterring the rise of ultranationalism in Europe and providing security to encourage democracy and political integration on the continent. Now, the idea was to keep Germany from trying anything for a fourth time. Fortunately, those fears were allied. 
allayed when a finally reunited Germany joined NATO in 1990. Reunited and democratic, I'd point out. That's, that's pretty key. The alliance also began establishing councils to open dialogues with non-member nations to foster cooperation, such as the Euro-Atlantic Partnership Council and the Mediterranean Dialogue. They were doing the, uh, basically following the Churchill saying of, jaw jaw is better than war war. Let's talk about our problems before we start a war. Yeah, that that didn't always work though with NATO. Didn't it was? It oh was, no, it didn't. It, it didn't. It didn't work a ton. I mean, it actually it worked. It kept small wars, I think, from becoming massive wars, which you find out in the Balkans. <laughs> yeah, we're but well, we're about to find out when we talk about Yugoslavia and Tito dying in the nineties, or was it the nineties that Tito died? I think it was. I'm pre- I think it is because I think that's when Yugoslavia falls apart into its four separate countries, five. But, Bosnia Herzegovina, Croatia, Serbia. God, I, Serbia, and there's one more. But we said Albania. I, I think. I think Al- was it Albania? No, it's not Albania. Albania. No, it's not. Albania was already. No, Albania was part of the Warsaw Pact. That, that was existed separate. Yeah, Albania was separate because Albania became free after Italy separated. Kosovo. Right, yeah. It was Kosovo. Kos- Kosovo. Yeah, that's it. This cooperation was immediately put to the test when Yugoslavia fell apart and everyone in the Balkans started killing everybody else. I gotta wonder what magic Tito was using to keep this from happening while he was in power. Um, But anyway, initially, NATO and everyone else saw this as a Yugoslav civil war and let them be. However, once it was confirmed that there was a lot of ethnic cleansing going around, NATO offered its help to the UN. Uh, This became a naval blockade, a no-fly zone, and airstrikes on weapons which violated UN resolutions. There was a nine-day air raid in September of 1995 that played a major role in bringing the conflict to a close. Also, NATO deployed some 60,000 soldiers from multiple nations to enforce the peace agreements and create conditions for a self-sustaining peace. In 2004, this was handed over to the European Union. Yeah, 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 which is not great, though, because the ethnic, not the ethnic cleansing, but the the same the differences that there. had led to the ethnic cleansing and the tensions, they're back, actually, today. It's just not being covered in the news as much. There's a lot of this border conflict going on between Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Serbia today. Yeah, it just hasn't flared up into full-on ethnic cleansing. I think that's also mostly because there's still a European Union presence there. Like, military presence to keep them from killing each other. Um, Yeah, following this Balkan War, mechanisms were put in place to allow non-NATO members to form partnerships with the Alliance in order to give them some support as they figured out how to live without Soviet dominance. These partnerships also allowed them to receive military aid and training as they modernize their defense structures. These partnerships could choose how involved they wished to be with the alliance, and routes to full membership were available. This was demonstrated in 1999, when Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary took seats as full members. This expansion was again tested when the ethnic cleansing kicked off in Kosovo again. The Serbian army was killing a lot of civilians, and NATO conducted 78 days of airstrikes. That's a ton. Uh, to get them to leave the city, which was occupied by NATO forces as part of Kosovo Force, or K4. K4 is still deployed to NATO to keep a lid on things. So they're there to this day, which has been 
that's like what 30 years of them occupying the balkans to try to keep them from killing each other yeah they really like Uh, killing each other don't they there's there's just a lot of there's a lot of ethnic differences in the balkans and it it, a lot of ethnic and religious lines and stuff well because you have like orthodox christians christians uh different muslim ethnic groups um yeah and they they're just always in such close proximity to each other that it it just causes tensions naturally and unfortunately nato is a blessing in disguise because you do have nato there and you have like k-force there but at the same time k-force and nato are doing their own things like you know bombing and having airstrikes for 78 days straight in places like kosovo and whatnot so it's there's it's a blessing in disguise it's a give and take on on both ends well it's crazy because like there, no one's really come up with a way to deal with the kosovo stuff because it goes back to like the 1200s or something like that's there were some people like in that conflict in like 98 99 citing atrocities that happened like 600 years earlier 500 years earlier and you're like well how the hell do you? yeah well and that, that was the same thing during the uh, the civil wars in yugoslavia during the 90s same thing they're, they're talking about and they're using mm-hmm. they're using yeah, exactly. old gripes and old pieces of tension to justify these massacres and these wars and cleansings yeah stuff that happened like pre-renaissance they're like well they did this to us so we must do it to them it's like okay that's um that's how to what <laughs> well all that the this second kosovo problem which happened in 98-99 taught the alliance that being the static organization it was during the cold war was insufficient in the modern world and a more dynamic approach was needed this again was put to the test by the events of 9-11 and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The attack in New York showed that turmoil in faraway places could suddenly show up in the nations of the members of the alliance. 9-11 was followed by more attacks, such as the bombings in Istanbul in 2003, the Madrid train attack in 2004, and a London train attack in 2005, like a London metro attack. NATO saw that al-Qaeda had used Afghanistan as a base to export instability and destruction, and something had to be done about that. Operation Enduring Freedom was the response to all this, and many NATO signatories participated. Well, okay, so this is also the first time after the attacks on 9-11, that is the first time, and so far the only time, Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was invoked by all members. Yeah, you're right. And that's why that's why you have the war in Iraq, why you have forces from Australia, France, the UK... The Netherlands, you have forces from all of NATO fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's because it's the only time thus far NATO has been able to forcibly or usefully or unusefully enact Article 5. Well, I guess it could, you could almost read it as like a testament to like the affection, like the, the, way, like the effectiveness of NATO because since its founding in 49, it's only been attacked once. So I guess, I mean, for a, like a defense, mutual defense pact, it's kind of worked. I, I see, I see. Okay, that, I didn't think about it from that perspective. Not that the wars in Afghanistan went well, but um, <laughs> basically the forces in Afghanistan... Uh, no, I don't know, because they don't actually talk about Iraq at all in their um, discussion of the Middle Eastern wars, because they seem to discuss Afghanistan almost exclusively. And I don't remember if um, ISAF or NATO forces ended up in Iraq, because I think that might have been a purely U.S. thing. 
because that had nothing to do with the Tal the Al, Al Qaeda. Yeah, it's something something else to further research yourself, people. Yeah, I guess that's for another time. Don't be sheeple. Research it yourself. Continue your education. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the force in Afghanistan, or possibly Iraq, I don't, I'm pretty sure, but uh, definitely Afghanistan, became the International Security Assistance Forces, ISAF. Those patches are pretty um, well known, which NATO took over command of in 2003. I did not know that part. While the mess in the Middle East was unfolding, the NATO-Russia, the NATO-Russia Council was formed to try to improve relations so security issues between the two could be discussed. Also, from 2004 to 2020, quite a few new countries joined the alliance. Uh, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Slovenia, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Croatia, Albania, Montenegro, and finally North Macedonia, which joined in 2020. I did not know North Macedonia hey, was Jackson, a thing. Jackson, yeah. say it right. It's Northern Macedonia. You were giving me shit for calling it Macedonia. I've been calling it Macedonia forever. You said, no, it's Macedonia. <laughs> Prove it. The burden of proof is on you. I don't have audio proof for that, but you—that's that's a that's a fucking that's a that's not quite a fallacy. But you you have I was I've been calling Macedonia since I heard that Dan Carlin podcast, and you've been giving me shit saying no, it's Macedonia, or maybe that's Ted. Like I said, the burden of proof's on you. Doesn't matter. I don't have proof, but I'm but you know if it's you anyway. I didn't know uh, North Macedonia was an actual state. That's news to me. I guess they're what they kind of like that um, that place in Spain that tries to secede every now and then aragorn or whatever anyway recently nato has come to realize that peacekeeping is really difficult and they cannot merely focus on the european continent as a threat from violent extremists and chaos in failed states is a very real threat regardless of how far away they are nato seems to be evolving from a purely military alliance into something that almost resembles a small localized un they're combining traditional military strength with political and diplomatic measures to achieve its goals uh, the Ukrainian crisis, which began with the illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, that's also the US, or NATO's words, illegal annexation, and I think that's interesting that they decided to go with that. Uh, 2014 is just the latest challenge on the path that has been nothing but challenging. And that's the end of their own history, so I guess it's been ratcheted up even more in the recent uh, you know, years. I'm seeing as there's a full-on invasion now. <laughs> Well, the the whole invasion with Ukraine going on right now, I mean, it is almost just justified having NATO still to this day because oh, absolutely. for the longest time, for the past like 30 years, people have been questioning if NATO is even really still needed or not. And now yes. with Russia has now shot itself in the foot by justifying NATO and its existence. Yeah. Yeah. The, try to unpack the Russian logic of that invasion is tricky. And doesn't and, and a lot of illogic goes around there. And this also like this quick coverage of NATO, and I can't say quick because we're at an hour and three minutes right now. This doesn't cover like the Rwandan genocide and the other operations that NATO has had in places like Indonesia and like during, NATO wasn't uh, part of Rwanda. What's that? NATO wasn't part of Rwanda. That was a UN mission. Oh, was it? It was a UN mission, so I do fuck that up. I rescind my statement. That was a UN mission, so I am sorry. Because like the NATO treaty prevents it getting involved in places that aren't the UN, unless that place attacks the UN, or just not the UN. NATO can't attack places that don't attack NATO. There. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I do stand corrected then. And on that note, 
we would like to end the episode and extend a thanks to everybody who stuck around this far. Uh, we will continue to work on the podcast and its quality and how this is going. So please continue to bear with us through these growing pains. And again, thank you to everybody and thank you for listening. Any closing words from you guys? Uh, thanks, everybody. Leave us a review. Hit us up on Instagram. We yeah. are on Instagram. Thanks a lot. This is fun. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. Later. Bye.